Okay. So, you ready? Sure. Yeah. So we were going to talk about UBI, right? Yep. So what are we laying out to be our our positions here? Oh well. Um, basically, I guess I I would need you to lay out your position as to why UBI is needed. What what uh, problem is it solving? And um, I guess we can take it from there. Okay, yeah. So in the context of a large scale economy where automation is happening. Um, so the demand side of the economy is primarily driven by consumers having money to spend on things. Um, and as we increase in automation, more jobs will go away, which means that none of that income is happening. And so the majority of consumers will no longer have any money to spend. And so the demand side of the economy will stop happening, um, which will stop driving the market. And so if we want to maintain our markets in the face of rising automation, we will want to implement UBI or something similar to give resources to the demand side, to the consumers, um, so that they can spend that money to keep the market running. Okay, so from what I'm understanding, it's, it's essentially like a sort of Marxist, Marxist kind of like argument. Um, I don't think it's Marxist. Okay, um, so I'll... I'll See if I, I see if I understood this correctly. So the main crux of the argument is, is automation, uh, and that um, that is causing people to to lose jobs, and as a result of or, or like on on a large scale, and as a result of people losing jobs, they won't have money to to purchase things. Therefore, demand will go down, and if there's less demand, then and all, over time, like the entire economy or like large parts of the economy, will just not exist within the market because they simply won't have money and therefore we need to give people money to save the situation. Right. Okay. So uh, can I ask for some more detail about automation? Like how do you know why are you under the impression that automation is causing this much havoc and, and mayhem? Oh, okay. And we're making the argument actually about automation. Um, so I guess, so by asking that question, I'm guessing your position is that automation will not uh, lead to the demand falling out of the market. Like there will always be jobs, is what it sounds like your position is. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, believing that automation will uh, take away jobs from the economy, it's basically looking, it's a, it's a sort of fallacy called uh, the lump of labor fallacy, where there's only like a fixed amount of labor. And if in, in, in the economy, and if that is taken away through either automation or, or could be different things as well, then there'll be uh, less labor in the economy, uh, either in the sense that it's less productive or in the sense that you're, you're claiming that there's less money to pay those workers with because their jobs are no longer needed, and therefore they'll run, they, they'll run out of money or won't have any money. Right. Oh, I I think it's a fallacy. I can explain I can explain why I think it's a fallacy, but okay. um, 
would you like to say why you think automation is such a threat? Because we, because if I if I'm not mis- if I'm not mistaken, we've had automation for dogs years, and uh, right now in the in the US in the UK unemployment is particularly low. So why do you think automation is so terrible? We need to restructure our eco- our economy and, and political and in politics for it. Yeah, so this is um, sort of a long-ranging kind of proposal. Um, And I also remember that Yang brought it up. Yang was also like a Silicon Valley bro, right? And I figure the people who are most aware of the potential of automation are people who are working in the tech sector. Um, And so Silicon Valley thinks that it's a risk. I think it's reasonable to look at it as uh, a risk because they're literally the people working on it. Well, I okay, I I am from that kind of. No, I'm not in Silicon Valley because I'm not in in America, but I'm from that sector. And uh, a lot of people say a lot of things. Um, and uh, particularly, for example, let's say Sam Altman, the guy who CEO of, of OpenAI, uh, says that in the future we'll have more jobs, and we'll ha- and everyone will have m- much more interesting jobs after the use of the propagation of AI, but he's concerned with like a sort of phase or, or, or a transient phase where there, there could be a, a lot of lost jobs at one go. But after that, he admits that it will be, in, in a long-term view of things, it will be fine. But uh, I, I would also preface that the Yang position for UBI, I did have two debates where I was on the side of UBI, but uh, but not because of automation, uh, because as Yang and other people have um, put their idea of UBI forward, that UBI will basically replace a lot of the functions of government uh, with just like giving people money. So the position that I had in a previous debate, well, just, it's, not, it's not necessarily relevant to this debate, but I'll just mention it anyway, um, that uh, if you replace all the functions of government, or 90%, basically, it's called, I call it the 90% UBI, you replace 90% of the functions of government, you just keep the military, the police, the court system, the prison system, and basically law and order, rule of law, and uh, everything else you, you, you shut down, and then just give people a UBI, then I would be in favor of that as like a stepping stone to my ultimate laissez-faire capitalist system. Um, but I don't think we're talking about uh, the same thing. So you're specifically saying that people will lose jobs en masse due to automation. Um, I, I can say, for example, again, we, we have had automation. Unemployment is super low right now. There's been a complaint about automation all the way from the Luddites 200 years ago. And uh, why, why now? Why the claim for automation is so perilous now? Oh, I wasn't exactly making a pitch that it was like, oh, we have to solve this right now. Just that UBI will need to be considered as, as that becomes more of a threat. I agree it's been happening since the, the Luddites, and it will uh, accelerate because of the, the progress of the technology. You talk about how Sam Altman says that um, there will be a, like a readjustment period, but then it will be 
better. So what is the argument for it being better recovering from this adjustment period that like we'll have more interesting jobs? What does that mean? So, so just so I'm clear, we're talking about AI specifically or just automation in general? Automation in general. But no, but if we're talking about Sam Altman, then he, he's like from the AI side. Are we talking about, you know, machine replacing factory workers or, or like automated McDonald's? What, what are we talking about? Yeah, so for the scope of the entire debate, I would say it's automation in general. But also, when I agreed to argue about UBI, I wasn't intending to argue about automation in particular. I, I don't know if I can do an automation debate. Um, but we can talk about UBI also in the other context that you said of removing social service and replacing it with UBI. We could talk about the merits of that as well. Um. So to some to some degree, like I, I would, the reason for for UBI is I guess important for the debate. Um, but like my, you, if you want to discuss my version of UBI, in which case we, there's a reason why like I'm for it. If we we close ninety percent of the government, just give people a check in, uh, instead. If that is what you're suggesting, then we can probably agree. Okay, so your primary argument against UBI in this context was actually related to automation in particular. Well, you are saying that the reason for it, I, I'm sorry, if you were to say something other than automation, I would I would ask about that. But if you're saying the reason why we need UBI is because it there's like this catastrophic economic event, well, well, a large chunk of people will be excluded from the economy. Therefore, we need UBI. Then we'll have to discuss that, but it's it's up to you. Do, do, do you understand what I'm what I mean? I think so. I'm not. I'm, I'm not, not sure. trying. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be difficult or anything. It's just like this is. Oh, yeah, the no, you're, you're this good. is the I'm crux of the it. argument, like from a logical point of view. Right. So the thing that I am curious about is, um, I just want to know what like the recovery process looks like so like if you state that automation will not be a threat like so we ha we have this this pattern right of like automation does remove jobs but temporarily um so we could talk about what has the recovery process looked like in the past because obviously we've had automation for a long time um and then how can we expect it to look in the future especially as um automation you know changes especially in the face of AI. And there's also the pitch that our jobs will become more interesting. And yet the interesting jobs, you know, writing things, um, creativity, um, you know, AI art and everything, those are at this point the jobs that are becoming automated, which seems to suggest that it are like the actually interesting jobs are the ones that'll be getting automated away. But you didn't mention anything about mass unemployment. What do you mean? Well, the I I can talk about jobs jobs being interest interesting or if you're discussing like a a period of a period of disruption that will then um, resolve itself after some time, then we're not talking about mass unemployment. Right. So that's my question. That there there needs to be a solid pitch for for recovery. But even in the recovery itself, we're not talking about millions of people losing their jobs. Okay, so 
Are you saying that with Sam Altman saying that there would need to be a re readjustment period, that this readjustment period does not involve millions of people? I mean, I don't see it. I don't see like I don't see it like a major disruptive event. And if it's transient, then you know, you know any politician can suggest like a temporary solution that isn't UBI. I I just need to kind of like understand what what sure. is apart apart from like the obvious saying if someone like the naive kind of um, assumption that if a robot replaces a job, that's it, the job's gone forever. And the person can the person who occupied that job will never find a job again. <clears throat> it, like if if you look at the if you look at the economy as a whole, that has not happened. Like even even from the period of the Luddites in France, where they wanted to smash um, sewing machines because the seamstress will lose their jobs or like you know sabotaged it and 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 protested and everything. Like once the French government, I believe it's the French government. If someone if I, if I'm not someone correct me. And then once the government stepped in, they uh, did like a, an analysis 44 years later, and, and the garment industry itself, uh, the number of people it employed grew by 260%. So, um, or is it? So were they doing more interesting jobs? Well, it appears to be that they were producing more garments, so they needed to hire more people for sale, for fixing certain things that the machines could not do for i don't know carrying things around but they need they were producing more the productivity of the of the factories increased and they needed more people as a result okay so i'm thinking about the pitch that the the jobs will become more interesting okay. um i with the case of the Luddites and that the, the textiles industry increase in productivity through the nature of those jobs become more interesting. Uh, well, I, it's 200 years ago, I, I don't know, but I can say that um, the idea currently with AI and let's say automation in general is that uh, you automate repetitive tasks or, or um, things that are easy to automate as in they're not novel the the repetitive and therefore makes it if you have less re repetition in your day-to-day -day job then it's more interesting or potentially more interesting i would argue that the uh introduction of machines or factories generally for like physical manufacturing actually um leads to more repetitive jobs especially because factory work as it started gaining ground um was literally putting people in assembly lines which i find to be a lot more monotonous and repetitive than like an artisan task of creating garments by hand. Well, the artisan task of creating garments by hand can be very boring because you're creating them very, very slowly. You're doing the same thing and you keep asking yourself, can, can we not do it better? Can we not do it faster? And you could say like for, for some degree, like if, you, if you're on a factory line, like in a sort of, Charlie Chaplin black and white movie and where he's like he keeps doing the same thing over and over again then you could say that um, that could be repetitive for that particular piece in particular like area not area sorry period of time and if you recall when Ford started making the assembly line he paid people 
double or five times more their daily wage so they can start working for him. So on the whole, I mean, it did work out for for the people there in terms of, you know, being able to have a job, have more income. Uh, in terms of repetition today, certainly with AI, I don't think you can make that, that same claim. Things are more aggressively being automated. Uh, but it's in a sense that um, you have more tools to complete your task and they can um, take away the monotony of, of the repetition. Even, even in my job, I can, I can write like, a few bit of, few lines of code, save myself a lot of work or the possibility of making a mistake and I just let it run and, and wait for it to finish. Yeah, so that's it. Okay, so we're looking at this from two perspectives here. Because, like, you brought up the um, like the interestingness of jobs, the pitch that automation will increase the interestingness of jobs. And then, on the other hand, so like UBI, which is how we came in here, um, which is that jobs will, hmm, these are related a little bit because there's an assumption that higher skilled jobs will be more interesting and higher skilled jobs tend to be paid more and so you would expect the, the income generally to go up hold on yep so one of the things i'm thinking about is that in um the tech sector it, that sounds like the sector that you work in so you can you can tell me how uh how common this is um but i've read about a phenomenon in which uh, most, not most, okay, so like a collection of people working in the tech sector are interested in working on very difficult problems. And many times they'll do this in their free time and create open source software, uh, mm -hmm. which has led to companies want to use open source software because it doesn't cost anything, it's open source. Um, but open source developers are typically not working, you know, in large teams or thinking about uh, interactions, integration. They're not typically thinking about those things. And so the paid work ends up being trying to mash open source software together to, to work together smoothly, which they describe as being tedious and annoying. And then in their free time, they work on their actually interesting projects, which is the open source software itself. And so it becomes that the unpaid portion is the interesting portion and the paid portion is the not interesting portion. So that is that your claim? So I'm kind of asking because you actually work in the tech sector. Yeah, I have read about this, but I don't work in the tech sector, so I, I wouldn't be able to verify it. Yeah, that's not really the case. Um, I work with the open source quite a lot in my in my uh, in my job, and. Um, it is true that when someone writes open source, the money for those people who write the open source code is, uh, or the project is, um, the consulting, the the fixing fixing patches if if they could be paid, uh, support contracts, things of that nature. The idea of open source software is not is not necessarily that uh, it it's free. Is that it doesn't it didn't have a license to worry about back in the day. Um, Everything was licensed, think like uh, Oracle and, and all sorts of like Java applications and stuff like that. And if you would need like some kind of uh, licensed software, 
which is expensive even just to to develop like in like a sort of test environment then you need to speak to like several people and they need to spend money for the licenses and it will take a very long time there's a procedure for it and maybe three to three to six months later you get what you need whereas with open source you just download it from the internet you you start your work and then at some point because a lot of people uh use these open source projects then it kind of led to those open source projects being in in production in a production environment um so that was basically the thing the, the, it's not necessarily the free although the free is great and it it you know helps a lot of people but also the other side of it, sorry the free is great it 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 allows you to bypass the licenses in an organization and then when people start using your open source project they pay for consulting support things of that nature once it's in production and they need the support um and free also you don't need any you don't need to pay for any sales people because you know if your project is good people will hear it you don't they'll download it themselves they'll try it out and then at some point they'll approach you and just say i need you to do some work for me here's some money instead of a salesperson calling call calling people and saying please try my product so that was kind of the idea with regards to integration uh could be you know plumbing could be tedious but it's not 99 of the job by any stretch it's like at the start of the project when you deploy every once in a while that's kind of it so we're talking about i don't know five to ten percent of your time generous being generous here that's not the core issue all right So that implies that ninety-five percent of the job is actually engaging and interesting. Well, I mean, technically, you're solving problems. If you're not paid to solve problems, then your company is doing it wrong. Um, maybe they're complaining about bureaucracy in larger companies and meetings all day long and stuff like that, you know. But it's not it's not uninteresting. I mean, maybe maybe some people complain about stress if they have to uh, deliver something on a deadline, but it is a. Uh, it's not boring. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing on your perspective. But yeah, the basically the idea of of automation is to even even in in coding, like you you try to automate as much as possible, um, and not do boring stuff. But bear in mind also. Um, not automating means that you you can have mistakes uh, and you want to remove those. So both for removing repetitive tasks and for knowing to some degree that those and automating those will result in less mistakes. That is the, the the plus of it. Overall, not a bad thing. I'm so curious about how like. If we expect automation to continue, so yeah. like we could say that the the dream of automation, or like the whole point of automation, is to work less. Well, again, no, from maybe from a Marxist perspective, if you want people to like work fifteen hours a day or something, then you know potentially. But like the idea of automation or the idea of, of progress and, and improvements in productivity is to do more, is to produce more, um, reduce scarcity in certain areas of the economy, uh, those that still have it. Um, 
achieve more things like if if for example let's say uh let's take an example so recently we have mid journey and we can ask ai to to paint out for us right and let's say let's say that we need some out for some kind of i don't know i want to invent a board game and i i it cost me a lot like i don't know hundreds and hundreds or thousands of dollars to engage with an artist to to make tons of art for um for uh, the board game and now I just go to AI and I say this is what I want try a few times let's say I still need I still need a person to review some things but overall I cut it down by like 80% and and it, and I do it faster because I'm I don't have to like wait a week or a month till someone gets back to me I see it right away and I'm able to develop a board game faster and, and the board game ships faster to the to the market and people can see it and I've basically once upon a time that would have taken many months but now it takes half a month let's say and um, that's kind of the idea to produce more to do more if people like the board game people get interested in in my board game then i'm able to sell more of them i'm able to uh, contact a, a factory to produce more of them if i need to and all that kind of stuff and it won't be super expensive so the people buying the board game won't have to pay too much money you know it's it's just producing more doing more more with your time for less cost so people can benefit more from what you do and you can benefit more and you can benefit more from producing more of those things and uh yeah live a better life for everyone i'm still not clear on how we get from all of that to living a better life for everyone like i'm thinking about well, if, um, if with the board game example, you're looking at it from, say, like a capitalist point of view, right? Mm -hmm. You you sell the the board game, but your your labor once the board game is complete is is more or less finished. You know, you might take orders here and there, but you can automate that too. Yep. Um, and so that the the job for that does go away. So instead of having, you know, an artist that you're paying, now you don't have an artist that you're paying. Well, I'm. Right? I'm. I'm not. A, it's not a job. You're. You're an entrepreneur in this. In this particular scenario, right? And uh, the benefit to society is you are selling a product that someone else values that improves their lives. If if it didn't, they wouldn't pay for it. That's an interesting question. If it didn't improve their lives, they wouldn't. But do you, do you understand what a trade is? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, what one trade comes no. from? Yeah, go a ahead. Pitch, like it comes from the pitch that it will improve your life. There's no guarantee that it will actually. You just uh, convince somebody that it will. That's all that's necessary for the trade to occur. What well, What is a trade? What do you mean? Definition. Oh, um, you you're giving a product or a service for money. Well, let, let's let's start by a trade. Let's describe a trade as mutually beneficial. Would would you agree that it's mutually beneficial? In perception or in reality? I. So, by what are you saying that? Uh, what? Why are you differentiating those two in this in a scenario of a trade? Like, what if you are convinced to try a product and you decide the product sucks, actually? Okay, I'll answer. Let's put a pin in that for a second. I'll answer it a bit down down the road. But just what is a regular trade? 
Before we get into edge cases, what is the regular trade? I'm not sure what you're trying to lead me to. So how about how do you just tell me? Okay, so we can so we we can agree by definition if a trade is voluntary, like I, I no one's forcing you to engage in the trade. Like you you can't like uh, force is removed from the from the equation here because if someone forced you. It's no longer a trade, and the government will protect you from that particular scenario, or it will just be a crime. So, in the case of a voluntary trade, if both sides agree to the trade, then both sides then it's a mutually beneficial trade. Both sides uh, want to benefit. They believe they believe that if they uh, exchange, that their lives would be better, and it would be the the exchange. What they are exchanging is of lesser value than what they are receiving. So far, so good. I don't know if it needs to be of lesser value, but I know that that's a, so, a so thing say, with like like value theory. I know is what we're going to get into. Well, just just um, just in a very without without too much theory. Let's say I have you know two dollars in my pocket, and I go and buy a hot dog. The hot dog is worth more to me than the two dollars in my pocket. Therefore, I'm happy to trade. That, that, I mean, we can just accept that for the case of. Well, or, yeah, I'm a bit. I'm a bit surprised. I'm a bit surprised. This is taking. This is more of the difficult. This is just a regular vanilla trade. It's like super. Like we do this like dozens of times a day. Yeah. So talking about it from the subjective side, okay. when I personally trade money for something i don't think that the thing is worth more than my dollars i go eh, this is this is roughly equal that works so let's say if you thought that the, that the thing you wanted to buy is not worth the money would you then buy it yeah i mean obviously not okay so it either has to be Slightly less or a lot less. Let, let's let's give a different example. Let's say you can say that it's about equal or lower. Okay, cool. Let let's take a different example. Let's say um, you want to buy uh, a, a mobile phone, a smartphone, yeah. And um, to you, if you if you calculate all the value a smartphone would give you, it would be worth two thousand dollars. Okay, that's that's your internal value. So if some if a phone is worth two thousand and one dollar, it's not worth it. If it's worth one nine nine nine, one one three nine, then it is. You go to the store and you want to buy a phone, and then the phone costs four hundred dollars. So if you if you buy this phone, you you just pay four hundred dollars, but you gained like sixteen hundred dollars worth of value, because it's worth much more to you. That your hat you you benefit greatly from this phone. And let's say for argument's sake that uh, to make the phone for the seller, it costs $200. So they made $200 worth of profit. And they can take that profit and buy more, you know, components and, and make more phones with that and pay wages. So here we have a trade. Both people, you know, traded, uh, traded in something, but both got value from the trade. Otherwise, they wouldn't even begin. They wouldn't agree to do it. So that's kind of the idea. So both people 
benefited from the trade. It's mutually beneficial. They both profited in some way. It's like a win-win situation. That's kind of the idea. Okay. Great. We got it down where the trade is. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So if, if, if I'm able to produce more things faster, like a board game, and people like it, and it, and you know, they can take it. They can play with their friends on a Saturday and they can invite their friends over some beers, some pizza. Yeah. And they, they sit around my board game and they have a great time. They're very happy with it and uh, it improves their lives a little bit. Yeah. It just improves their life and they're, and they're happy. They bought it. They're, they're happy for the role, for the whole kind of event. And uh, we can do, we can have a situation with increased productivity that we do more of that kind of situation. We improve people's lives more. Yeah, so you improve them on the consumer side. Sorry? We're, we're improving them on the consumer side. You're assuming that the, the I mean, obviously the, the capitalist or the, the seller's life is also improved. We have like mutual beneficial in that sense. Yeah, I, um, I, I also, uh, as the greedy entrepreneur, I made money. <laughs> you don't have to be greedy. I think that's I'm, what, I'm what we pitched. But this is, this is the nice thing in a trade. I'm self-interested. The other side self-interested, and it is in our own self-interest to trade because um, this trade will be to my advantage, to my self-interest. And in order for me to uh, to make products or services, I need to consider the other person buying the the thing. So, as as a result of trade, two people who are both self-interested have a harmony of interest. We are both interest, interested in serving ourselves, but as a result of the trade, there's a like a sort of group-wide harmony of interest. Okay, sure. So going back to the UBI thing, especially like the jobs thing. So uh -huh. your pitch is that the purpose of automation is not to reduce the, the work that we're doing, but actually to increase production. It definitely increases productivity, yes. Absolutely. Okay. And so we're talking about improving a lot. Okay, so so let's go ahead and assume that work will not decrease. That what won't, won't decrease? Work. Work will not decrease. The number of hours that people work are going to be the same. Sure, may even increase. Oh my god, increase. You may even need pe mo more people. We only have so many people, right? Well, uh, let, let's let's look at it this way, right? No, 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 wait, let me finish. Oh, sorry. Um, so saying. if we assume that the amount of work stays the, the same, then a significant proportion of our lives, say one third um, of our lives is devoted to work. And you could say that having these things to consume does improve our lives in some way. Um, but if the work experience is not also increased, if it is in fact, decreased in quality, um, we may experience overall with that gigantic portion, right? A whole third, um, a, a lower quality of life. Um, you lost me completely there. I'm not sure what you're trying to say. So you're considering the experience of the consumer as a consumer, but I am asking about the experience of the consumer as a worker. No, I, okay. But what does that to do with, with the, the automation? 
So we go back to the pitch that automation will make jobs more interesting. Okay. So let's say we have the artist, right? And the artist has had their job replaced by mid-journey. And so they are no longer doing uh, custom illustrations for board games, spec art, whatever, what have you. Um, so what interesting thing are they doing instead? I don't think the artist lost their job. I think the repeatable parts of their job, the, those may not be there anymore. So the, the artist has to do more difficult, the more specialized parts of the, of the job. You could say that as a result, some people will not start the, the path of being artists. And the existing artists will have to be really, really good artists. Um, but as a result, people who need the services of artists will have access to that service at a much, much lower price and be able to incorporate it in their own uh, life, products they're trying to sell, services they're trying to sell. Right. Well, with the game board pitch, you, you did actually get rid of that artist. Job. No, I. You're using I, Midjourney I instead of the artist. No, I said I did 80%, actually. Okay. Well, I don't remember you saying that. I said I still need a person to do some touch ups. Okay. We can add that. Hiring the person to do some touch ups, which is, you know, less of their, uh, their 40 hours. Sure, but they can do, they can take on more jobs like this. If, if a lot of people start using Midjourney, for example, and they need just the export bit at the end, I'm not sure I'm describing it particularly well, but let's, for argument's sake, say that the Midjourney part does the repeatable easy part, and the more difficult creative part, you can't explain to the machine, it won't come out very well. You need like someone to take it and then finalize it properly, do a good job of it. But it did like a big chunk of the of the of the first iteration of the work. Then you still need a, an artist to do the more experienced side. Now, you, again, you could have a situation where the really good artists will stay and the work will be needed, and they'll get paid. They'll get more work because people are now starting to use Midjourney and they're interested in having a finalized product, and they will contact more specialized people. But you could have a situation that people won't that younger people or less experienced people may not join the industry. They'll just leave or not, or not uh, leave to another industry. Right. So your pitch with automation is that it doesn't reduce jobs. So they are actually. So the pitch with automation. They're going into other interested industries is what you're saying. They're going into other industries that are not art. So, so when I say reduce jobs, and this is the claim of all automation, like on a, on a economy scale, they absolutely do not reduce jobs because people just move from one place to the other, or or people will like stay in the industry and re, and and you know till they retire, but not but fewer new people will come in, so like the industry is just shrinking. But another yeah. industry, another industry that is benefiting from this much much cheaper service starts to blossom and grow because now like a core element that before was very expensive, now is super cheap. It's like, oh, if this is super cheap, then I'll start doing this. And, and a new industry pops up. They need new people. So newer people will come to this new industry. Okay. So say it's like the board game industry that blows up while the art industry shrinks. No, I don't. So, I, I, you, got, you may need a different example. 
Okay. Can you give me a different example besides the the board game and the AI art? Um, I don't know. Nothing's coming to mind. But basic, but like the description of of a sector that is less needed, so has fewer new people joining, and and like or, or the number of people joining is is lower than the number of people retiring and then another industry is like new and exciting and everyone joins that I, I i can't think of anything on top of my head right now maybe i need ai to give me some hints <laughs> um okay so what's wrong with the board game example because the uh, ai art is for a million different uses not just board games Okay, so the pitch still is that those what who it, would have gone what, into the art industry would go into a different industry. So if not the board game industry, what? So they'll disseminate through a bunch of different industries. I'm I'm not sure what the question is, but basically what I said before about one industry will shrink, another or maybe maybe more one will grow, and as a whole, the there are, there are not less jobs in the economy. There are always more jobs. It keeps growing. Do you want an example of a growing economy? That it's like grows quite quite quickly? Yeah, I mean, you don't want to do the, the game, <laughs> the board game example. So yeah, yeah, give me whatever, well, I, whatever I, example works for you. AI out can be websites, you know, brochures. A lot of things I can't. I don't think board game has a monopoly on on artists on using artists. Yeah, I wasn't suggesting that they do. So the direction that I was going to go with it is that people who would otherwise go into art um, are now doing, I don't know, webs things that are fundamentally not art is what I was getting at. Um, I mean potentially I. I can't, I don't know if art, art is just like a very uh, wide topic. Like you can do art in so many other things. I'm not, I'm not sure. So maybe you won't do illustration or maybe like you'll, you'll, you'll have a little bit of illustration skill, but then go into fashion or something. And like your art will be used in, in, in like that particular uh, industry. Or you started with art and then you went to, again, at website design or, a variety of different things that can use that element. Um, so I, I don't. It doesn't feel right for me to say um, that this is the, the there'll be less less artists. It it could well be the case that if you started as an illustrator, you may want to change. You may and, and like you know, AI is like taking over most of the roles, and you're finding it. You, you're not interested in competing. You want to take something easier, then you may. Switch switch jobs earlier in your career before committing to being an illustrator. But people who've already committed, they could still remain in more specialized roles. Right. So the nature of the artwork does end up changing. I'm thinking about like specifically having a specialized artist who like fixes AI art. Yeah, you can have that. And to me, that sounds like a less interesting job than doing the conception 
from beginning to end. So again, I'm going to have to, um, I'm repeating myself, but basically the idea of the interesting part that you're raising is that, and, and, I'm, and I'm replying you, to... You is, raised it initially. Right. And I'm replying to is that I may have raised it initially, but you keep harping on it. And my comment is the same as before. It removes repetitive tasks. So if, if that doesn't make it more interesting, I don't know any other way of expressing that. I don't think having a higher density of fixing AI art over and over again is less repetitive than uh, conceiving of an art piece from beginning to end. I, I okay, I, I don't know what to say. I, I think it's just abandoned this example because I don't know if it's necessarily relevant. I don't. I am not an artist to say this is what they do. But again, the idea is that you do less repetitive and more novel jobs. Right. That, that would be cool if that were the. The case, but that's, that, that is no. kind. That if is you entirely, want to pick a different example, that is I'm super happy to do that. Go that ahead is, and, and bring one. I don't think I'm. I don't think it's necessary because it has nothing to do with with job losses and UBI either way. But again, yeah, we the, went off that as soon as we started focusing on automation. But okay, and any in any case, like removing repetitive, boring parts of your role and, and only dealing with novel problem solving tasks of your role, that is the idea of more interesting in quotations. Yeah, so the pitch is that automation will lead to more interesting jobs. And what I'm seeing from the example so far, and even if you go back to, you know, the Luddites are, are shining historical example, um, I don't think that led to less repetitive jobs either. Okay, I don't care. Oh, okay. Nothing to do with the, nothing to do with the, the topic at all. Okay, so you're not interested in discussing that uh, that it's automation not, will lead to more interesting jobs. I mean, I, I, I made my claim. You're unconvinced. I'm not trying to convince you. I thought we were doing a debate. But not on this topic. Not of interesting roles, of loss of roles. Yeah, well, I mean, it, we focused a, in a, on it's automation. A side, it's a side topic that's not relevant to the thing. That's why I don't care about it. Okay. Uh, if you don't want to debate about that and don't think that you can convince me on that point, um, what would you like to focus in on instead? I would like to focus in the millions of people losing their jobs and, and the reason for UBI. Right, so you're... I feel like we hit a stand still on that pretty early on, though. But that is the key. That is the debate. Yeah, so when we pitched it, we were talking about UBI. I gave my general pitch for it. And then we focused on automation. So this is not about the merits of UBI, which is what I thought that we were going to argue about. This is about whether automation will lead to loss of jobs, which I okay, didn't we'll make... agree to argue about. So we're saying, we're saying, I can't see a lot. I can't see like a, a gigantic loss of jobs. Certainly now, again, we don't see it. Like mass, mass unemployment, we have very low unemployment. And, um, so that, that particular reason for UBI, that doesn't seem to be the case. Now, if you're going to make a different reason for UBI, I'm all ears. What if we structure it as a hypothetical to talk about UBI's function as a vehicle to replace or stimulate demand? What if we do that? Well, I would say demand is already stimulated. We don't need to stimulate it anymore. Right, but 
with like a hypothetical of say automation did lead to, to whatever this is an alternate universe where things are completely different well no um, stay, stay stay on your point like you want ubi to stimulate demand i that's perfect that's a perfectly valid claim and i'm saying we don't need to stimulate demand anymore the demand is already very stimulated like we have inflation in fact um so why would you what do, do you feel that if we stimulate it if you stimulate the uh the economy more that something will grow more we'll have more money what what uh what, what would be the benefit of giving people money to then stimulate the economy so i mean decided to talk about ubi you said that you were going to argue against stay on stay, UBI. on stay on topic just for a second i'm asking you to stay on the topic <laughs> this, this this is your how how am i avoiding the topic i don't understand so when we originally uh, agreed to argue on on UBI, I thought right. that we were going to argue about UBI, assuming the the premise was true, and then we moved to arguing about automation instead, about whether whether the premise was even true, which I'm the premise, cool with. Remind me the premise. bouncing around to different arguments. Remind me um, the pre remind me the premise. So the original premise was that as automation increases in the loss of jobs, uh -huh. with the loss of jobs, UBI is the solution. So you wanted me to accept the premise. Right. And so we're arguing on the basis of UBI, not on automation. That's what I thought we were going to do. I, I didn't say it that way then. I, uh... Okay. Then it was just a misunderstanding. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we talked about automation up to now and, we, and, and the loss of jobs. Uh, I can't, I can't accept the premise because there's no evidence for it. And it is a claim that's made often for, and especially for UBI, but, um. So you don't have any other objections to UBI besides that the automation premise does not have evidence. I do not have any object. I I am I particularly made a claim about it as a way of replacing functions of government because that's even even Yang was suggesting something similar. I just took it to a more extreme. Um, but with regards to giving people money so the economy is more stimulated, that's again not something that holds a lot of water. We can argue about it, but I I don't think. There's necessarily a case for it. Certainly not um, going into debt for it. If that was something you're you're claiming to do with UBI. Oh yeah, I wasn't catching going into debt. How, how are you going to pay? Wasn't... How are you going to pay for the UBI? By the way, what's your, what's the plan? Uh, taxing out the top. Okay, let's talk about that then. Um, do you think that the okay. top have that much money? Bear in mind. So let's let's just throw a number here. So let's say, uh, you know, 300 million people, roughly, or I don't know, 260. Um, let's say $1,000 a month, 12 months in a year, we're talking about 4 trillion. So close to 4 trillion. So um, where is that coming from? That's from taxing the corporations or from the service providers, basically. 
So if you give somebody a thousand dollars, they're going to spend it on something, right? And so it's those industries that are getting spent on that are being taxed. That way, that money goes back into the demand side, and then it gets spent again, and then it's taxed up top and given back to the demand side. And the the pitch is that because the market leads to increased productivity, increased um, profits, if it does, then taxing that same amount out the top and putting it into the bottom uh, means that you get a net increase in economic uh, activity and in profits. Have the utility measured as subject. Right, we're, we're, we're chatting here. Um, so it sounds to me like you, you want, instead of the money that someone buys something goes to that service provider, the government quickly takes it away and gives it back to the person who paid that money. And it's, it's, it's essentially like, like putting like a coin in a slot, mach slot machine, but the coin has a string attached to it. So you keep pulling it back up, then pulling it back into the machine. So if you say that, um, what you are assuming then, that uh, all, all industries operate precisely at cost with no profit. Right, you're removing the profit and giving it back to the person who, who, made, who, who, who bought it, the consumer. So the amount that you're taxing off the top is going to be the same amount every time. Right. Well, how are you taxing? Sorry, let me just just so I'm clear. Are we talking about taxing individuals? Are we talking about corporation tax? What uh, what kind of tax yeah, are we talking so we're, about? We're talking about service providers. What's a or service provider? Product providers or or whatever. So, like, say that somebody um, they get a thousand dollars and they pay for housing, they pay for food. Yep. Um, we'll just call it that. We pay for housing, pay for food. We tax housing providers. Um, and we tax food providers. So you, you tax McDonald's and you tax like a, a, a developer that builds a house, yeah? I would say more rent because like when you buy, if you buy a house outright, you just like, you just like bought it and it's done. So it's not an ongoing cost. So it's only if it's like an ongoing cost. So we tax McDonald's and landlords. Sure. And landlords. Yep. Yep. Okay. A heavy tax to, to pay for this. I don't know if it would necessarily need to be absolutely heavy. absolutely heavy tax. No way to avoid it. We're talking what, about what a, a, well, four trillion is a lot of money. Yeah. How how much do you think the economy? Okay. So here's here's the part that is confusing to me. Yep. So the pitch about being a a capitalist or an entrepreneur or whatever mm -hmm. is that you will make increasing amount of profits as you go on. Well, hopefully. And so you, you're actually increasing the, the money. You get more and more money. But the same amount gets taxed because you're only giving the person, you're only giving the consumer $1,000. And so if you right, wait, okay, can um, make profits hold, hold from on, that $1,000 that you receive, you get more money. Pause for a second, right? Just, just a second. So just from an entrepreneur's point of view, before you even run the equation you just said, the like one in 10 entrepreneurs make it. So there's nine who failed, right? Or let's say more accurately, six outright failed in the first year, three just make enough to like bear subsistence, and one actually does well, right? And then on top of that, the people, even the people who do well, they have a lifespan. The average lifespan is like 11, 15 years. 
then they die. The company goes away. And it's not the case that every year you'll have a profit. Certainly in the, in the first few years, you'll have a loss. So just, just let's take that into perspective. It's not like, you know, like a, like a gambling machine. Like if, if it was easy and everyone would just instantly make money as an entrepreneur, everyone would be doing it. And, and anyone who isn't doing it is just a loser because obviously you can make a ton of money as an entrepreneur. Why aren't you? Okay, so it's, 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 not, it's very risky and difficult to, to get a situation where you're a profitable company. So, okay, continue from that premise. I don't see how it would be different. Because you only have a minority of companies, a minority of people who, who will be successful for you to then tax. Everyone else has lost money. Okay. Okay, continue. Where is the money coming from? Who are you taxing and how? Oh, sorry, you said McDonald's and landlords, right? Right. So, so let's say if you tax... McDonald's heavily, or if you tax uh, landlords heavily, they'll they'll leave. They'll file sale whatever they have and leave. They won't sell it if they're not making a profit. What? If, they are if, making a profit. Not of the. So if you tax them heavily to the point where it's barely or slightly above zero profit but basically zero then they'll leave well why would you tax it to that point because you need to make you need to somehow make an additional four trillion in taxes do you think that there's not four trillion in profit and then some in the economy no no i mean the economy itself like on on a year let's say the the u.s I think it's like 20, 20 trillion, maybe twenty-three trillion a year of movement, right? Now the now the currently let's sorry let's say twenty nineteen the the U.S. again I'm 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 not American but I'm a little familiar with the numbers. The U.S. is uh, used to spend four point three. They used to collect three point four trillion, so they'll have a deficit. Now. The, they call they collect four point three and they spend six point eight, roughly I, I believe. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that's the number. So again, they have a deficit. They they're not even collecting enough money to to spend. They have to to like basically borrow money and then hopefully pay it in the future. But it doesn't seem to be the case that the deficit will ever shrink. Uh, also, in my country, that doesn't seem to happen. Even though they're trying really hard, it seems that the deficit keeps growing or the boring keeps growing. Uh, putting putting aside uh, printing money and stuff like that, we already have inflation, so I just put that aside in, for the argument for a second. Um, so if you want to increase that by, by another 4 trillion, so we're looking at essentially 10 or 10.8, uh, or I don't know, 10 and a half, let's just say 10. Um, that, that's a lot of money, and, and just, just so you can appreciate it, that there isn't even enough cash in the economy for this sort of tax. Like, there's only 2.3 trillion, I, I, again, I could be wrong, 2.3 trillion of, of, of actual money in the economy, so you basically, you're relying on money being created to then pay for the tax, like created either, either like uh, banks 
created with fractional reserve or, or, or like someone someone prints money, then you can then makes money out of thin air so that you can then tax it to, to just meet the, the spending. Now, if you were to tell me I'm cutting, I'm reducing spending and then taking that cuts and putting it into UBI, I'm all ears, but I don't see how you can heavily tax. Uh, even if even if you take like the the ultra rich, like like even if you you take all the rich, all the billionaires and whatnot in the U.S., like strip them of all their assets, and let's let's assume you get a hundred percent for all the assets of what it's like theoretically valued when the, at the time of sale, you're not even going to pay for the deficit of one year. Like it, it's. <laughs> It's like, uh, it's just uh, this thing like the rich will pay for it is such an imaginary concept. Like the rich do not pay for it. The, yes, they have a lot of money, but there's really a very few of them. The middle class pay for them. They always pay for it. The middle class are, they, they may not have like billions of dollars, but there's a lot of them. And like, you know, you, 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 uh, you increase I, like I, a, I get the sense that you're monologuing at this point. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, go ahead. Let me know where you're getting the money from. Yeah, yeah, so it's the it's the profit from the uh, the companies. Is, is um, the, not enough. Where do people get money to spend? Grows on trees in the first place. Grows on trees. They harvest okay, so it in the ground. Our economy grows on trees. Definitely, they, it, it, you plant it in the ground. A tree of money comes out, and you just pick it. I don't know what to say to that. That's well, did you, not a good thing. The, the money, tree, <laughs> the money tree. I mean, that's the, that's where you get. If you want to like slap on another four trillion, that's that's where you get it from. The money tree. Okay, no? so you might get your money from the money tree. Absolutely. Um, I get the money that I can spend from a job. Okay. I get a wage. Uh-huh. Good for you. You're doing it the right way. Anarchy, I am fired. <laughs> What's um, the UBI? Why not just give the property of the companies making a profit to the people? I don't want to argue about that. Maybe we'll do that later. Um why why do we have so, why do we have backseat drivers though? In why do we have backseat driver in a two person debate? I know this is our debate. Yeah. Let's move it to private. Is it private? Oh, I like listening to it. Okay. Yeah, okay, so everybody right, shut so up. Let, let, let me just, <laughs> I'm just going to make the point that there is, it's either, the, if the taxes I don't feel will work here, like I, either in the, in the sort of, Corporation tax, you know, there's a lot of ways of getting... No one agrees that is a good thing, both on the left and right, because um, it's essentially a tax on uh, employees and shareholders. Um, if you want to tax income people, or, or, like people who make an income, or you want to tax, like, the higher income earners, then, you know, there'll be a point where they won't accept that. If you want to... I don't like that anyway. I don't like taxing from the the earning side. I think taxing from the profit side makes more sense because they're the what they're generating profit, right? Well, and so that wage, there's value that is being generated. Uh huh. But that value is distributed amongst employees and shareholders. Ascent, like simplified, but that's kind of what's happening. 
in the U.S. it's not really distributed amongst employees. But let's 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 say a company, right? Let's like pierce the veil of a company. What is a company? It's employees and uh, shareholders. It's just, and 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 a, like a, a set of contracts between them that gives it the veneer of a, of a company. But once the money comes in, it's it's given like to the wages and the and the people who work from like the regular person to the CEO and then the shareholders. Just just let's simplify things. Yeah. Um. So you want to take money from that group of people, the 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 employees and shareholders. It would it would be primarily the shareholders rather than the employees right. because cool. wages are considered an input. Outstanding. Who are the shareholders? Investors. Lots of people are shareholders. Right. Lots of people are shareholders. You know who else is shareholders? People who have a pension. Most of most of the or a lot. I don't even actually. I can't make the claim of most, but a lot of the money. Let, let's let's take uh, Microsoft. Like uh, Bill Gates, as far as I know, only has two percent. Uh, shares of my again, I could be wrong, but like a lot of them, a lot of the the sorry, a lot of the companies that own shares in Microsoft are pension companies. So, okay, so and, and, hang on, let me actually pitch this a different way. So, okay, so you have the money from the companies that are going to the shareholders. That's not even necessarily true in a lot of cases. Um, that's just like a publicly traded companies, right? You mean um, like you mean like dividends so having, or? So if you have UBI on like a country, let's yep. say it's like country, country, it's universal, right? Um, yes. What that basically does is that it shifts it so that everybody in the country is a, a shareholder rather than just specifically the, those who have bought shares. You could say that way, yeah. Right. And so, and so if this setup works for shareholders where you are generating value for shareholders, I don't understand why the generation of value ceases working. So, to so before before the UBI happens, you need to tax it from someplace. You're saying, I know I'm taxing it, but like the look at all the plus sides. One once people receive the money, so I'm just like, where does the money where where does the money come from to begin with? Now, if you're saying, for example, um, the UBI is enough to replace Social Security, then we can have a conversation because then you've already like removed I don't know two trillion towards your your aim. So if, if you remove Social Security and say, well, UBI is better, then we, we have something to discuss because now you need less tax to, to pay for it. If you also say we can get rid of all welfare, so let's say 700 billion, 900 billion, various like welfare things because we have UBI, we're, inch, we're inching towards your goal. Um, and then like you can, you know, slap, like you can remove some other programs and, and you can cut, cut the military a little bit. And then like we'll, we're getting there by cutting, but not necessarily uh, from taxing heavily. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I just, when we started the debate, you said that you're going to argue against UBI, but I didn't, I wasn't expecting you to be like for UBI in a certain set of circumstances. Well, I mean, I, either way, like, it needs to be feasible. If you're just going to say we're going to tax all profits and, and it's okay because the money's going to go back into the economy anyway because it's, it's like circular circular economy or donut, a donut economy or something like that. And like, look, you, it, it, the money has to come from somewhere. It doesn't like, like, it's, a, it's like 
you print it, so then someone spends it, and then it gets taxed later, or some kind of like different uh, order. I don't, I don't see the necessity of that. I don't. Okay, so, like, explain to me more why tax and profits is not good. Explain to you what? Sorry. Explain to me why taxing profits is not good. Tax taxation in general is the why taxation. No, no, profits specifically the profits well, coming you, out you, of the, you, the, company, only... the the generated value. You're only taxing profits. There's no other place to get taxes from. Is that the thing that you're saying is bad? So I'm I'm saying like if you tax too heavily, so there isn't any profit. That's bad. Yeah, but you shouldn't need to tax all the way to the point where they're not making profits. I mean, if it's if it's a heavy tax, then you know the profit goes close to zero, and they'll be like, "What's the point? I'll I'll just stop." Okay, so walk me through the four trillion figure again. Well, if you, how I got to the four trillion is the question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's whip out the calculator. So if basically, yeah. Let's say you, we're saying a thousand dollars for per month, twelve months in a year. Uh, let's say three hundred. So you know, three point nine trillion. Okay, three point nine trillion. And you're saying that the collective profits of all of the four profit companies in wait we're using American numbers, right? So that's a thousand dollars for you know the three hundred million here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying that the the collective profit of all um, private companies or actually all service providers, I guess you would include right, public when that's relevant. So I, I need I need you to specify. You mean the collective profit is way above four trillion or what what is what are you trying to say sorry yeah that's what i'm that's what i'm asking is it that the collective profit of all all those companies does not it doesn't meet four trillion uh i'm not sure actually i don't know but i, I feel like that's but, kind of important but like if but so but i'd need you to translate that in, into a sort of tax like what do you mean to tax the profit of companies it's like so we're saying revenue minus expenses and and the prof in that case the profit of companies sounds to me like a corporation tax. Okay. Right? And then I can then I can talk about corporation taxes because actually we have been talking about corporation taxes. If you want to look at the profit in terms of like wages, and that's income tax. If you want to talk about sales tax, or I'm not so, talking about it in terms of wages. I am talking about it. Okay, so, corp corporate tax. If that's, okay, so if that's what that is. Corporation tax, as it stands now, is a small out of the money coming actually i can give you exactly cool uh, but uh, i'll look for it in, in some time but i'm not sure if it's on wikipedia or some kind of uh, government website but you can see specifically how much money comes from what source and corporation taxes is, is not not very high uh income being the highest highest portion of of taxes or tax revenue sorry um should you should you increase corporation tax dramatically to cover this four trillion and, and I assume it is dramatically. Um I would say that corporation tax is not a favorable thing. A lot of economists on both sides of the aisle think it's a bad thing and it should be zero or close to zero, I don't know, ten, fifteen, depending. Um and 
the point that I made earlier that a corporation tax is essentially like a tax that you that you kind of spread across the employees and the shareholders. So let's take it from there. Well, if you're spreading it across the em employees, I feel like it still makes sense to take it out of the, the profits of the company rather than taxing the employees directly. Because if you're taxing, if you're doing income tax, like then you're definitely taking from the employees. Right, but if, if you... Know? And so if we're deciding that that's bad, that we that then taxing them indirectly is what I've been taxing them directly. So if you if there's less profits, then... Um you won't be able to pay the employees as much as you did before. Employees are, uh, are an input cost. You mean it's part of, it's part of costs already? Yeah. Um, I can accept that. Um, then I think... Then I'm... I'm not entirely sure how much additional money you have in the economy. If you're doing it, if you're already allowing people to reduce uh, revenue from, sorry, expenses from revenue, then they could play with it to have zero, to pay zero corporation tax. What do you mean about playing play with so it? So if, if you have a very high corporation tax, then you could you could, let's say, Let's say your Starbucks. And oh, like tax evasion generally. Well, tax tax evasion is illegal. Tax avoidance is legal. But okay, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> so, if, for example, taxes on corporations are very high, and companies still want to work in that country that has a very high corporation tax, then they'll find ways of not paying it just to keep existing in that country. If they can't find, they'll just abandon ship and and just close up close up shop. Uh, but if they are able to find like another country and then that other, let's say Ireland, and then that uh, you, you op they open an office in Ireland and they say, well, we made $108 million worth of profits, but surprisingly, um, there's, there's a, our headquarters in Ireland says we need to pay $108 million worth of licensing fees because we're licensing something from them and we have zero profits to then pay corporation tax. Okay, so your pitch is that taxing off the top of corporation doesn't work because they will do all they can to avoid taxes. I, I would say two things. They'll either avoid it or they'll close up shop. Okay, so on taxation generally, it's better to oh, sorry. Can uh, I, tax can I, income. Okay. Can I make a third point, sorry? Can, can I, I, yeah. I, in addition, they won't invest in anything they'll won't if they had any plans to make a new factory they will st cease that and they will also as a flip side of not investing because there's no future as a flip side of not, not investing they'll try to um it's called eat they'll consume the capital in a sense they'll the existing factory they they'll won't fix something if something breaks they'll slowly let it uh break down because They've already paid for the factory, and they're not going. The, the return on investment is very low, so they'll just kind of eat the factory, eat the cap, consume the capital till there's nothing of it, and they'll just leave. So three things. Go ahead. Yeah. So that sounds like um on the the basis of of 
practicality with taxation. It's just like harder to tax corporations. That seems to be the pitch. So I'm, I'm not I'm not clear. Like so are so okay, so to clarify your your point, right, that if you raise taxes on corporations, they will do all that they can to avoid it. And so the argument is essentially that taxing corporations is not a good idea because it's way harder to do than taxing anything else. I mean I, I suppose it's I, I I guess I would should look into more incorporation tax, but here in the UK they're going to increase it by 30%. And um, it has reduced investment. Some companies have left to Europe. And um, and some companies have withdrawn um, investment plans. They, they made it very public that they're withdrawing their investment plans in the UK. Um, and I guess other people who have not said anything will just try to avoid it as much as possible. I mean, in general, in general, like it's standard behavior to avoid, to to avoid it as much as you can and pay what you have to. Right. So it'll end up being a debate about uh, about tax law. <laughs> I mean, look. The, so it's called sheltering in place. You you always had that problem in the U.S., for example. You always had that problem. People will just shelter right. the money so they won't have to but also sheltering in place also means um, sorry not sheltering in place tax sheltering your tax i don't know why i said sheltering right, in place. Right. sheltering your shelter tax in money. place drill yeah. we're very yeah. familiar with those here in the u.s sorry so sheltering sheltering uh your money so it, that it is not taxed but also in doing this is but this is more for like personal for individuals more but um people who do that they when they restructure how they pay taxes so a lot of the money is sheltered. They also take it out of productive circulation in a sense because they could be doing something with it, like I know, make a new company or or invest in something. But because then they'll have to declare it or something that then it kind of it kind of is like taking it out of circulations because they're sheltering it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always been a problem. It's not. It's not. It's not uh, something. It's not like a th something. That isn't serious. It's it's very meaningful uh, in terms of tax revenue. That's why you have people like uh, the La people who, like the guy who did the Laffer curve, Art Laffer, who said, "Look, if the taxes are too high, then you get if the tax rates are too high, you get less less tax revenue because people will shelter the taxes. But if you lower it to a particular point, you may actually get more tax revenue, even though the taxes are lower." Yeah, so it it sounds like what ends up happening is that the um, the taxes are necessary for any government operation. Um, but so the companies or the people, the individuals who are being taxed, the ones who have the most ability to tax filter their profits or income, are those who have uh, greater resources available to them to begin with. And so whenever you have a taxation scheme, if you're going on, uh, if, if you're trying to avoid, you know, the people with all the money sheltering, uh, that means that you're going to necessarily be taxing those who are uh, less resource. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, so that, that seems like an issue. Well, you'll change... 
you're changing the behavior of people in the market. Like when you when you play with these tax laws, people behave differently. So this is just one of those uh, types of behavior. Yeah, only the the well resourced people mean, are the ones who who will behave differently because those who don't have the ability to to shelter their money will, will not their behavior can't change because they can't do anything. Um. I mean, I would, I would say for mostly yes, but, but you can have a change of behavior for tax reasons um, countrywide. I'll give two examples. Um, in, in the UK, in like I don't know, three hundred years ago, people used posh people used to like um, to wear wigs or to, or take their hair and put a lot of hair powder, like the sort of white powder, in it, um, and like make it look all fancy and like Jane Austen kind of kind of way and at some point they they put a tax on it and you needed a license to 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 use this pow- this hair powder and um if if you didn't if you didn't have a license and didn't pay the yearly tax for it um i don't know you'd be thrown in jail and then it it just kind of changed the behavior of a lot of people in the country they stopped buying this powder and they had shorter hair. They cut their hair short, and and as a result, like short hair across the UK. I I don't know. It's like more popular, and people stop wearing those those people who still wear the white wigs. Like if they're a solicitor or something, that's from that period basically. Uh, but that's a that's a, w- a way of changing behavior. Another way of changing behavior is in America in the nineteen fifties when taxes I think were like ninety one or ninety percent uh, on income, or on the on the higher on the higher uh, brackets, you used to have executives that would find ways in, in companies that would find ways of getting compensated, but not through money. So they would be they would have these very large and expensive lunches, and that would be all paid on the company. So the company would expense that and pay less taxes. But if you were like any, if you were like a serious person, you would go to these like really fancy lunches, and then um, you would also have like. A, They'll give you like a, I don't think this is in the 1950s, I think this is somewhat later, but they'll give you like a, a company account where you can spend money, a certain amount of money from from the limit on this account, like a small things or, or larger things. Or like if you if you take a client, if you're a salesperson, you take a client out and you have like a, a company credit card that you could you could spend money to some degree. This is again all expense, but you can also spend it on yourself. And then like companies started buying like artworks instead of like, Instead of the CEO getting paid, taking this money and buying a piece of artwork, the company would buy the artwork in his name. And then, like, companies had, like, a, a floor in their building that was just, like, really expensive artworks. But all these kind of tricks, like, fell, fell apart when Ronald Reagan lowered the taxes because then it was just kind of expensive to keep it going. So they just stopped and paid the, what they needed to pay. So did we end up getting more tax revenue when uh, Reagan instituted policy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The tax tax revenue specifically, yes, but the problem with Reagan is he also spent it. He spent the more the more tax revenue that he received. What did he spend it on? I again, I'm, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but because uh, <laughs> I'm not uh, my my knowledge of America has limits. Uh, but uh, yeah, you can look that up. He, he increased the spending basically, and actually, we had the we had the pr- prime minister for about forty days 
over in the UK that tried to do something similar. She tried to lower taxes, but then pre-spent the money she expected to come in from the from the revenue to come in from that. Um, and people, that's that's a bit of that's not exactly a bit of a debate as to what happened there in that period. Uh, but yeah, it uh, it didn't work out, and people were very upset that taxes were being reduced because they saw it as a tax cut for the rich. Like any tax cut is a tax cut for the rich, so and that's bad. Yeah, well, I mean, if the, the taxes being cut are primarily on the the rich. Well, so this is this is like an interesting argument because um, if you have a tax cut and everyone benefits from this tax cut, but because the rich benefit from it proportion because it's proportional tax or progressive taxation or proportional taxation, the, the the rich will also benefit from this. People are like, no, I'd rather everyone suffer together. And and we had this like the the chancellor that replaced the. That the, that the prime minister replaced with, and then she left as well. The chancellor that that moved in, the, he's the, the current chancellor. Chancellor of the Exchequer is the, the treasury, I suppose, treasury minister. Um, he basically said, "We're all going to have to make tough choices together," and everyone shut up. Everyone was complaining about how dare you tax the rich less during these hard times. Like, look, we're only we're only moving taxes to what they were eight years ago, so we can generate some some economic growth. And, and like we're, we're still stagnating, so we're still like at oh, zero. That's a generation of growth. I thought it was that that decreasing. So the pitch is that decreasing taxes on the rich will actually lead to greater tax revenue. That's that's the Lafa curve, yeah. But she she did it to generate growth as well. And any anyway, he basically he put the taxes back on the high because they were going to to increase. So she wanted to remove the increase and uh, decrease it a little even. But he's just he he undid that and he kept the increase. The increase is set to to be soon, and uh, he said we all need to to make tough choices together. And then everyone just instantly shut up. They they were like satisfied with that statement. It was amazing to see. I have to say. Oh, okay. Yeah. So taxes is always a very complicated. Complicated topic. It's it's also interesting to me. I guess we're winding down, but it's also interesting to me. Like when yeah. I talk when I talk to leftist, uh, like left of center economist type, they have like this wish list of taxes and this wish list of of uh, policies or welfare policies, and it just seems it just sounds like so unrealistic to to me. Like they can fix the economy better than any kind of. Of course, of course, we're making these mistakes and we need to do this instead. Like. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. But uh, everyone has a wish list of their own. I guess, I guess there's something I do as well. But it's, uh, it's to cut a lot of things. I'm still thinking about the the corporation tax thing. Yeah, you can about how um, in the the time immediately after FDR and his New Deal and those obscenely high taxes, we had a period of incredible prosperity oh that so that is the point so with regards to to tax revenue you have to look at the effect effective tax rate and the effective tax effective tax rate was somewhere between 16 and 18 percent um with regards to the prosperity yeah i think i should 
I'm not sure. I, I'll have to study. I, I'm not sure if there was one or like it was right after people came back from uh, from war, and there were there were a period of time where a lot of money went towards the war and a lot of people died. So it was sort of like a like a like a leveling a leveling event where because a lot of people died and a lot of like bad things happened during the war that that caused for some kind of a degree of uh, e- e- equalizing the economy or the financial situation between different people and then afterwards because it, there was a, a period there was a low period like to come out of that that's like a growth thing well, not, i have to to check that but um i think that's uh that could have been the reason for that but again, with regards to growth, I can also point out to between uh, nineteen eighty two and nineteen eighty eight and nineteen ninety four and two thousand as good periods. Um, and I can also even say, like in twenty sixteen, like even though you know the the recession was two thousand eight and. And we're working, and the U.S. was working towards that. But even in 2016, 2017, sorry, uh, there was still a, a huge growth and increased tax revenues as well during that that period, and reduced uh, unemployment. Right. So from the the lowered tax rate. Yeah. Okay. So when the tax rate was lowered, we saw increases in. Okay, so the qu- the question that I have is that, like, because it's about taxing as it relates to how much revenue you can ultimately get out of it. And so there is sort of like a theoretical set point that if you tax it at a certain level, you will get more overall income in the the raw numbers to the, the government. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like the ultimate pitch is that this set point is too low to support UBI. Um, I I would say that, um, I mean, maybe I would say that the way to support UBI, even from Yang's point of view, is to cut something else. You can like, you have a, you can have a combination of like 75% cuts, 25% taxes. But, um, the whole point of UBI is that it replaces something else. And like that something else is so inefficient that if you just gave people cold, hard cash, then it's better than hiring like an army of administrators, third-party contractors, all that. Just give people money; it's easier. Uh, that, it that will be. Kind, yeah. That was kind of the claim to begin with. Um, so means I, I, testing is absurdly expensive. Right. So, so basically, like that. That was kind of that was kind of the the point that these welfare policies are ineffective, and uh, I, you probably know more about this than I'm because I'm not I'm not physically there, but. Um, the whole, again, the whole idea was to replace something ineffective and just give people money. And as a result, cutting, yeah, cutting think, that ineffective. Yeah, I think generally removing uh, means testing. Conceptually, you don't even have to do UBI. You just remove the means testing. You make a bunch of money. Or not make a bunch, but you save a bunch of money. You just remove the means testing. Um, but people here get all up in arms about like, what if people who don't deserve it, you know, they get to benefit from it. It's like, well, the amount of money that you're spending for those people to benefit from it is way less than the amount of money you're spending for all the means testing. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I I'm not like a fan of uh, welfareism to begin with, but um, and I, and I can understand like the people saying like that it, it could it could potentially be hurting. I mean, it is to some degree hurting the people who receive the welfare. Um, yeah, so means testing is uh, is harmful actually because if you set an upper income limit, it means that people cannot ever go beyond that income limit, which means that they have. So we're talking about incentives again. Uh, they have incentive to remain underemployed to continue receiving the welfare benefits because the welfare benefits are better than what they can get while working. So there's there's two points. So I understand. I, I think what you're saying is called the welfare trap. Uh, where if you go beyond yeah. the we go beyond particular number, then you're just you're basically losing ninety percent of of something, and just you you could actually be losing money if you're promoted at work or something like that. Um, sort of, but yeah. But I, well, I forgot what I wanted to say with regards to what were we talking about before a second ago, like welfare and losing. Means testing. I slipped my mind. So yeah, I, so I think you were talking about welfare trap. There was another point I wanted to make, but I, I guess I'm tired, so I forgot it. Apologies. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm thinking about this in the context of of UBI, of like the money has to come from somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. If we, you know, set the automation point aside, um. If you automate to the point where a certain position in your company is no longer needed, then you no longer have that input cost. Um, and so that also is a place where the money would come from if corporations didn't have the ability to tax shelter. They, you can't not have. But they do. You can't have. They don't have the ability because they'll be cleverer than you can predict. Right. Yeah. So that seems to be the primary problem: is that uh, ability to shelter. Yeah, I mean, because people will behave according to certain things, and and yeah, um, am I am I saying the tax shelter is the main reason? I I actually think I think it's one of two one of two reasons. Either they'll tax shelter to remain in the country, or they'll tax avoid. Sorry, to remain in the country and work, or or simply not work. And I don't and and certainly certainly no one will invest if if they open a fact open a, a factory and they can't make any money from it in the future they'll stop and and if they've already have a factory they'll basically just kind of bleed it dry till till they just reclaim some of their money but so so for example look at it this way right and i hope i'm giving the right example and if i'm not i apologize um i think detroit um and Possibly Philadelphia. I'm not sure. Let's say with Detroit. I think they had someone come in the, in the 90s and increase taxes on everyone there. And as a result, I hope this is the right state. And as a result, um, the population shrank uh, over 20 years. So it's not, it's not immediate. Like the taxes went up in the 90s, but it took another 20 years for the place to get decimated. Um, companies closed down, houses were abandoned, the population shrank, um, like a very, very negative way. And it's not immediate. Like the increasing in taxes can destroy a city, but it takes a while because, because if you're, because if you're already invested in something, 
then you're not going to like, you know, leave the country or leave the state because because you can't, you're you're stuck, but you'll just like change your behavior to, you know, try to get better return on 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 your existing investment. But as a result, you know, it's less opportunity there. And then when you talk about you're saying, you know, automation takes away someone's job, but taxes can also take away someone's job. And on a large on a large scale. So you really have to be careful there, and you won't see the results immediately. I mean, even if you increase taxes now, let's say you'll have more tax revenue in six months or nine months or 12 months, but in, in 10 years, like people will just leave your state or your country, and then you'll have less of these things. And these things take a long time. Like even if you, let's take Biden's CHIPS Act, even if Biden like allocates money towards that, you won't see any of it till like at least four years, like, that's just the first brick to build the factory is like three or four years away. So, yeah. so if like you're saying, I'm, I mean, I'm signaling to all companies that I, I'm going to tax you to, I'm going to tax you heavily. They're like, okay, thanks. I'm not interested. Yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah, because if, if we take the the automation piece to to be true, like if we just like assume that, uh, which we don't have evidence to assume that, let's say, um, I mean we don't have hard evidence that's true. Um, so it's like a speculation. Um, then UBI would in fact be a reaction to that overwhelming amount of automation. I I think there's a case to be made for UBI for replacing government inefficiencies by just giving people money. Yeah, in the current context. But you could also just remove means testing and you don't have to mess with UBI. I'm, 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 refer I'm referring to means testing. I'm referring to um, anything that sits between the, the government and the receiver of money and all the middlemen and third-party people and, admi and government administrator and all those things. And, and if I'm... If I'm Remember correctly, I think Bill Clinton, like, no, actually, I'm not sure if he did, but he, he relied on a study when he changed welfare. And I I'm, don't remember exactly what he did, but I'm aware he, he cut it. But he relied on a study a few years earlier that says that basically um, from, from taxes that are supposed to uh, go to, to welfare uh, to the amount of money that actually reaches the pocket of uh, the welfare recipients, like 80% is lost through yeah. various different like you can say you know something like um uh something in kind or like medicare and stuff like that but but putting medicare aside for a second like let's just take like homelessness in um LA let's say like uh i think they're spending like 12 billion they're only building like i don't know 7000 or 10000 apartments why because it's costing 700 and 800000 dollars per apartment and if you, basically the idea with UBI is like, look, forget all that, forget all the, you know, white elephant projects or, or, or bureaucracies or, you know. It's basically administrative bloat, yeah. Yeah, or favoritism, just heal some money, figure it out, a lot of money, figure it out. Like if, if you literally took the 12 billion and just split it across the homeless population in LA, like what, 40k each, 70k, it's like a lot of money. So twelve billion. That's not going to help the chronically homeless, um, but it will help. Yeah. So that's 
Well, I'm just saying not- LA specifically, right? Or California? Maybe I'm exaggerating. Well, I don't. Maybe it's California. We could, we could constrain it to Los Angeles. Or actually, I don't know. A better study might be like San Francisco. I know that they um, spend like a, a shit pile of money trying to deal with their, their homeless problem. Yeah, so if you if you take the billions spent, I I think twelve billion is actually on a larger scale. It's in California. I think I think it's let's say like one to two billion in LA specifically. Let's say you take that, you have forty thousand people divide one billion by forty thousand people, like literal. Like that's the number of homeless homeless people there. Give them I don't know what is forty. What is the billion divided by forty thousand? It's like you know, it's several tens of thousands. And like just you know, figure here's a lot of money. Figure your life out. Obviously, you're you're incentivizing. Someone has to come, hey, I'm also homeless, please give me $10,000 or $20,000, but, you know, let's, let's, for argument's sake, in this hypothetical, say that won't happen, and you just directly give money to people, um, you know, they could be, I mean, unless, you know, barring, like, heavily addicted people, like, maybe they'll just take the money and, and, and figure it out. At least that's the plan. I don't know if homelessness is the, the good issue to focus that on because you have, okay, so let's take San Francisco. I guess this applies to LA too. Um, LA's weirder. Um, but in San Francisco, for instance, so a lot of the issues that they're dealing with is um, like zoning. You've yep. got zoning, you've got um, people who are like, not in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, if you give people, especially homeless people, Especially the chronically homeless. So that that's really interesting because you want to look at what the chronically homeless population looks like um, as opposed to those who are, you know, temporarily homeless. Like lots of lots of people have like an instance of homelessness where a cash infusion would help them get on their feet. Um, but if you have the chronically homeless, you that is not going to work for them. I think I so I, I was using the example of, of LA on, in a, I think it's called the HHS project, as specifically as an example of of money of money that's spent very poorly. Uh, you're right with regards to zoning and stuff. I think I think the calculation is, even the the non-profit in quotations developers that that were allowed to to work on this project, forty uh, percent of their money is lost before the, a shovel even hits the ground, just on administration, loyal stuff like that. Right. Um. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. And um, I would also say that homeless, so this is a bit controversial, but homeless in general, from my understanding, 70% is, is because of housing shortages that, that leads to an increase in house prices, rent, stuff like that. And yes, the 30% have some mental issues, have probably addicted to drugs, but from my understanding, uh, and I'm relying on other research, Again, seventy percent, and and a lot of the people who are um, homeless, like they're not they're not young, like they they were like they they worked in society, they had jobs, they had something, they were like in their thirties, forties, fifties, and then became homeless. So, so something went wrong right. there, uh, and and it could be the case that you know they couldn't pay the the mortgage, they couldn't pay the rent, and they fell through, and then they were homeless, and they couldn't get out of it. Um, so yeah, if, so housing, housing supply has a lot to do with, with homelessness and certainly like NIMBY and zoning, zoning and stuff like that, environmental regulations, um, 
that you need to you need to produce these environmental reviews for the for building a new building all these sorts of things reduce the supply of housing and increase the price right but that's specifically so specifically on homeless not 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 ubi in general right right yeah i know it was shifted because we kind of like fell off the top which i'm fine with um but if you, if you give the money to homeless people directly so with patterns of homelessness what we see is that if you're giving a one-time payment or is okay so is the pitch that every year you would allocate this amount of money to giving it directly to people who are currently homeless no my my idea like that's not part of this debate my origin my idea in other debates was that you cut 90 percent out of the government because bear in mind when i did this the spending was yeah, like four point two trillion. I want to keep it to the housing thing. I want to keep it to the housing thing. I I don't know. I don't know what this what to say specifically to the housing thing because it, if you pay homeless people like a large sum of money, you're incentivizing people to become homeless. But if if you had a lot of housing, then I believe they wouldn't become homeless, or, or at least the theory is seventy percent of them would not reach that stage. Right. So yeah, basically. But I, I think I think you can compare. You'll have to compare this, but you can look at like places like uh, Austin in Texas, where they didn't have, I believe, they didn't have zoning laws, and um, house prices are more reasonable. Again, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, if you can check that, and, and and yeah, I can And and I believe I believe there are less homeless. Or certainly, I don't think that's a that's a high bar to, to cross in, in the case of LA, but there's less homelessness than LA. And yeah, I mean, once, once, yeah. You're, once you're on the street, then, you know, you could be, you know, you could start using drugs because why not? Or life is already bad or, or whatever reason. I'm not, I'm not an expert. And then like you're in the cycle already and then it's difficult to get out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking like in the case of like, so we're talking about like zoning regulations being um, a big barrier. Uh, there's also, so income inequality is going to increase nimbyism to a degree. Um, um, so so, so I, I, I have a point about uh, nimbyism and money. So okay. the, I've had a, a few, I think it could be on this survey even, uh, that people said that, um, no, it was a different survey, that... Uh, People who do NIMBY, they do it to keep the value of their houses. And there was, mm -hmm. a, there was an economist that, that suggested if that was the case, then developers could basically negotiate with the people who have NIMBY power and offer them some sort of money in compensation if that's what they're looking for. So if it was just about money, then there could have been a negotiation about that. But I think people just like... It's not. I think people are just against the idea of ruining their their area. They don't want it to to change its character, stuff like that. Because if it was just about right. money, then they could have have some kind of discussion about that. Yeah, I agree that it's not just about money. Uh, yeah, so... yeah, they want to preserve their their environments. Yeah. But the problem, problem with NIMBYism, the way I say it, it's, it's like just it's a democratic uh, thing. Like it's people, people voting 
have the sorry people having the power to vote to exclude people who are not there who are outside the area is uh just like a democratic thing like it's the same with the you, you could apply it on a country scale to immigrant immigrants like we don't want immigrants because we have our own resources we like the character of our own country just like we like the character of our city slash town it's a, to me it sounds the same okay Yeah. So in the context of homelessness in particular, I don't think that you can like address um, zoning regulations for one. Um, you also can't really address the building of, of new housing. If you're doing sort of like a one-time cash infusion, that does help as a safety net for families that are in danger of becoming homeless or who have like recently become homeless. Um, it doesn't really help the chronically homeless much at all. Um, and also because it is a one-time cash infusion, it doesn't help with ongoing, like it, it wouldn't last for long enough to stimulate the builders to build additional housing. Because well, it's just a one-time cash infusion. Um, I think I I think the HHH project had like several one-time cash infusions to the builders because they were they were taking on a lot of debt. Oh, to the were, builders directly. Yeah, because yeah. the, they were taking on a lot of debt themselves, uh, much more than they expected. And um, yeah, I, I I would agree that it's not enough. Uh, I, I think the, co the root causes are um, the administrative overhead, the, the zoning, the environmental reviews. Mm -hmm. Certainly NIMBYism uh, can delay it as well by a lot. Um, none of this is positive. So, yeah. Let, let's look at let's look at it in a different way. Let's let's not talk about housing. Let's say like you're building. I've got about a, five minutes, by the way. Sure. Let's say you want to build an office building, right? Same same problem: NIMBYism, zoning, environmental reviews, all all, all the same there. But a, a, a building, once you build it, you have more jobs. But if you have the same issues as you did with building houses, I mean. Obviously, you know, some houses go here and businesses go somewhere else, but for argument's sake, let's say it's as difficult to build houses as it is to build an office building. Um, you have less jobs, fewer jobs, um, fewer opportunities, more people in poverty because jobs are like the biggest thing that brings people out of poverty by far. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's not helpful for in, in any way you look at it. Yeah, well, I'm thinking about it in the context of like you're replacing a welfare program. Yeah, I don't see how that applies to office buildings. The zoning and uh, well, it's not UBI specific; it's more housing specific. Like if you remove the obstacles for for to build housing, and you can build an office building, and you have more jobs, and then you'll need less welfare. You still need houses to house the people who are yeah, yeah, I, having I, jobs. I, Sure, I agree, but you know, I'm 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 not against either. But uh, if you if you, I'm kind of kind of saying that if you allow buildings slash houses to be built, you'll have more opportunities for people to earn money, and without it, you have fewer opportunities. Right, and so with welfare or just I don't know, we're talking about government spending doing government spending to solve the problem of homelessness 
it actually makes more sense to pay it to the builders rather than to the uh, the people well, who are housed. You, I don't know about that. I think you missed. I think that kind of goes against your UBI principle because if you if you want to take that money and and government officials give it to third party contractors like bit like developers, then that bypasses the whole UBI logic. Right. Yeah. So we kind of switch sides here because your basis for UBI is that it will effectively replace welfare programs. That work. That's what makes UBI good. And that welfare pro programs are inefficient and, and not helpful. So it's mostly about the inefficiency of welfare, the administrative overhead. Um, and like, you know, the, the whole system, well, it's not just the it's not just the administrative order, well, that's a big part of it, but like also the money that go would go to developers or go to uh sorry. When I say developers, I mean like third party contractors and, and all all the people involved in the system that somehow manage to keep the money to themselves and it doesn't reach the the welfare recipient that should be receiving most of that money. Yeah, but the pitch isn't to get them to receive money, it's to solve problems. Well, the, if money doesn't solve the problems, then we have a completely different discussion to, to do. Right, well, that's kind of my point, in that if you give the money to the people who are experiencing homelessness rather than um, using that money to address the, the root causes of a lack of housing, uh, that that is actually not going to work as well. Well... I would say this. So I talk about Detroit having empty houses. Now, if you if you pay money to the homeless, the homeless people in, in LA, and let's say the housing situation stays exactly the same, the, th the in theory they would take that money and go to like a, another place that doesn't have a housing shortage, and buy a house, put a down payment on a house, or rent out, but like have a very comfortable amount of money to to last them a while and get their life together but it won't it definitely won't be in a situation where there's a housing shortage but but the, you know if you think about it i be, i believe i could be wrong there's like one and a half million available houses in the in the u.s but uh, but five hundred thousand, i believe it could be 140 i'm not sure if it's five five hundred but let's say five hundred thousand homeless people so they could reallocate them to other parts of the country but everyone prefers to be in cities that's kind of the problem yeah, that is part of the problem. So you could do it on a national level, maybe. You could well, no, because the housing programs I think are done state by state. They tend to be because I think, yeah, yeah, because it's partially state funding. Because you have the uh, what is it, the housing and urban development, but they they don't provide the majority of the funding. Um, they do Section Eight, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah, I. I I've heard about Section Eight, but um, but yeah, I mean, again, I mean, I don't know. We are we are discussing here as if we're kind of like uh, philosopher kings, knowing how to solve the problem. We we probably don't. Um, there could be experts that that we could you know cite or tell us what what to do. Um, we we can we can assume that. Let let me make an assumption, okay? We can. I would assume that the more people are free to make decisions and unshackled by the government, in the case of what we've discussed already, uh, then all of society will be better off. So, 
if people are just free and, and let, let's for argument's sake like it's not it's not really my intention or my, my position let's for argument's sake say that we include your ubi saying we give people money but because but by doing so by giving people money they are free to spend it how they choose to to spend it so this element of freedom here again and we're not hindering developers and all that like all that is removed the government's out of the way well because that we can't afford to keep them anyway we'll just we have to pay ubi somehow and their jobs are in the way uh, the, the, those salaries are in the way. and in addition like a bunch of people now have to leave the government and join the productive workforce and actually produce something so all that for your case of UBI is, is is a positive thing in my in my claim. Doesn't that still beg the question of where the UBI comes from? Well, you you cut ninety percent of the government. Okay, so all taxes remain the same. All taxes remain the same. Okay, so just but the UBI payments don't get taxed. They do get taxed. Uh, they'll if you pay forty percent, let's say you that that UBI will be taxed forty percent. Okay, so it's counted as income. Yes. Hmm. So if you're if you're already in a very high bracket, you're already very rich. That that uh, UBI payment will be taxed as if you are in the high bracket. You are, but it will be it will be taxed at a high bracket. I don't know if it's gonna work. It's your suggestion. What do, why is it not gonna work? What's wrong? Well, your suggestion was that it, it replaces um, welfare. My suggestion was to so we are, we already went over like the the reason that you can't tax it out of the corporations is because you know multiple factors. The it's just harder to tax corporations, right? Sure. So that, that was my pitch. So we can consider my pitch already like done, right? So like it ends there. Okay. So now what, it's your pitch what, that it what, will effectively replace welfare. Why wouldn't UBI work uh, in this in this way? Like you, you just give people money. You say good luck. You know what to do with it better than we do. And here's and we're out of the way. You're talking about just on like a national level, right? Because so like level. UBI is going to be replacing just Section Eight, and so no, no, you no, still have no, no, the not states. Section 8. Not Section Eight. They're replacing every government function, every every government function except police, army, uh, court system, and prison. Right. I was just con constraining it to to housing, just to talk about how that would affect. Well, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm still working through the problem. So we're we're just like constraining it temporarily. I'm not saying that it wouldn't apply to other things. We're just sure. we're we're imagining uh, what the effects would be on on this stage. Okay. Um, I don't think that universalizing that would be as effective as simply reducing means testing or eliminating means testing you could you could call it 
So as opposed to an automatic payment being sent to everyone universally, it's on the basis of you are asking for it. So let's, I think, I think essentially if you're saying, um, you're removing means Unfortunately, testing. Unfortunately, I need to go. <laughs> so I, I would just, um, I would just say that removing means testing is universalizing it. Yeah, there's just this piece of not everybody is necessarily going to request the payment. I think that's a minor issue. I mean, you, you can up the taxes by like 0.1% at the top to, to pick up the whole, uh, if that's your concern, to pick up the whole uh, UBI payment or something like that. So inst instead of like doing yeah, means We're going to have to pick this up later. Sure. We're going to pick this up later. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm down to pick up where, where we left off. Maybe we can put a note somewhere that this is where we left off um, and then schedule another time. Sure.